Before I start my sermon, I want to share with you something that I think is really, really important, and it's really important to me. So as most of you know, 2020 brought all kinds of challenges, global, national, and even local, and we've, we've felt them. I mean, they impacted almost every facet of our lives. But when we look back and we start shining a light on some of those areas, that, some of the darker realities of our society, 2020 opened the door for some honest conversations about a very important topic, and it has to do with race. And we want to be better at listening, and we want to be better at loving those around us. And so we're introducing a unique and I think an insightful and helpful way to continue the conversation. Starting on February the 21st, we're, la- we're launching a five-week group called Be the Bridge 101. And this group is going to focus on welcoming diversity and healing into our community through racial reconciliation. It's a group for honest conversation about a lot of things, hurts, fears, real life experiences that are, that are going to focus on Jesus and the way he called us to live out the gospel right here in Lexington. So space for this The space for this group is limited, so I want to encourage you to sign up early at ncclex.org/groups. All right, sign up early, be part of the conversation. I don't think you'll regret it. All right, today, today is Super Bowl Sunday, and later today, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to face off with the Kansas City Chiefs. This game has some exciting storylines that go along with it beyond the game. First of all, Tampa Bay's quarterback, Tom Brady, is playing in his record-setting 10th Super Bowl. 10 Super Bowls. It's fascinating. And then another storyline is the Kansas City Chiefs are trying to repeat as Super Bowl champions. They were here last year and won, their, won a Super Bowl last year, and now they're back to try to repeat as champs. Now, if this is all news to you, then you're, you're likely annoyed that I'm wasting all this time talking about football, right? Well, I want to apologize to you and ask that you indulge me just in one more minute so that I can take the poll that I call it my annual Super Bowl poll. Every year we ask this question, okay? Who do you think will win this year's Super Bowl? So, if, you're, uh, if you think Tampa Bay is going to win, just drop Tampa Bay into the comments section, okay? And if you think Kansas City is going to win, just drop Kansas City into the comments. And if you don't care, the only reason you turn on the Super Bowl is to watch the commercials, just drop don't care into the comments section. And I'll just give you a little bit of uh, history on this poll. Every year, don't care wins in a significant landslide. So thanks for giving me the opportunity just to share this with you. This year's Super Bowl is between two teams that are pretty evenly matched. But some of the past Super Bowls have been played by some teams that had, you know, faced some significant mismatches. Some teams that were extremely favored and those games were blowouts. But then there were a few of these games where one team was significantly favored over the other, 
but it was a huge upset. One such game happened in Super Bowl 42 between the New England Patriots and the New York Giants. The 2007 Patriots had an incredible team that year. In fact, they, they went through the entire regular season and the playoffs undefeated. That's 18 straight wins. On the other hand, the New York Giants just made it into the playoffs. And they had to win three games on the road to make it to the Super Bowl. The Patriots were favored to win this game by 12 points. And most of the people who watched the game would tell you they thought it was pretty uneventful. Some would even say it was boring until the fourth quarter. That's when it all kind of started to happen. The fourth quarter saw three lead changes. The highlight of the game was the Giants' game-winning drive when David Tyree made a catch that is called the helmet catch because what he did was he pinned the football to his helmet while being draped by a Patriots safety. He pulled that down and some say this is the most exciting play in Super Bowl history. Well, Eli Manning had to evade five different defenders just to be able to throw this pass so this incredible catch could happen. And it was just a few plays after that that Eli Manning completed a touchdown pass to Plaxico Burris in the end zone with just 35 seconds left in the game. The Giants took the lead and would eventually pull off an inconceivable upset. If your team isn't playing in this year's Super Bowl, I think if you're like me, like most of us probably, we root for the underdog in the Super Bowl. And you know what? I find myself oftentimes rooting for the underdog in life as well. An underdog is defined as a competitor, least likely to win, or a person in adversity or in a position of inferiority. I think that most of us want to see the underdog do well in life. I know I do. I know I do. Well, in our message today, we're going to look at one of the great underdogs in the entire Bible. At least on the surface, he looked like an underdog. And the guy I'm talking about, as we continue our series, Elijah and Elisha, Stories of Hope, the guy I'm talking about is the prophet of God known as Elijah. His story is found in 1 Kings, the 18th chapter. If you have a Bible or you're following along on your phone or your, your tablet, turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to start with verse 7. Listen to what he says. When he, that's King Ahab, saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. When King Ahab saw the prophet Elijah, he calls him the troubler of Israel. And the reason Ahab said this is because for the last three years, there had been a severe drought in Israel, which had led to a severe famine. Ahab believes that it's all Elijah's fault. And here's his logic. Since Elijah opposed the pagan idol of Baal, Ahab believed that Baal had become very angry. And so he didn't allow it to rain for three years. It was all Elijah's fault. But Elijah pushed back, 
saying you and your family are the real troublers. And we know that's true. If you go back a few chapters in 1 Kings chapter 16, we read this in verses 30 and 31. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. The sins of Jeroboam were sins that focused on idolatry. And Ahab took those sins to a whole new level. Ahab was evil on his own, but there is a key piece of information that the writer includes in this verse, and it's this. He also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. No woman in the Bible is more identified with the wickedness and treachery than Jezebel, the queen of Israel. Jezebel urged Ahab to build an altar and temple to the pagan god Baal, as well as a place of worship for the pagan goddess Asherah. Jezebel personally plotted to wipe out all the prophets of God. Ahab and Jezebel were a power couple who history remembers as having done more evil than any other leaders before them. They excelled at evil. Elijah, when he sees Ahab, immediately speaks truth to power. For three years, Ahab had hunted for Elijah. He wanted to have him killed. And now they're face to face. Elijah courageously wastes no time in confronting Ahab. He says, you have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. They had gone so far from God that they actually made Baal worship the state religion in Israel. Elijah's message was so direct because Ahab had been so shamelessly rebelling against God. Elijah continues, verse 19, he says this to Ahab, now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Elijah wants Ahab to know that the God of Israel is greater than all other gods. And Elijah is ready to prove that. This showdown wasn't Ahab versus Elijah. No, it was the almighty God versus idolatry. Elijah tells Ahab to bring together the prophets of Baal and Asherah, the most prominent gods in all of Israel at the time. The number of the prophets, a total of 850, that alone showed how significant these idols were at the time. Verses 20 and 21. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? 
If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. The people of Israel, they had drifted at this point from God and now Elijah wants to convince them it is time to return back to Yahweh, the God of Israel. He also wanted to prove once and for all that, the, that Baal and the priests of Baal were phonies. They were frauds. There's nothing actually to them. Elijah asked the people this direct question. How long are you going to sit on the fence? If God is the real God, follow him. If it's Baal, follow him. Make up your minds. Elijah's point, his point here is simple. You can't have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in a pagan temple. You're going to have to decide. You can't have it both ways. You're going to have to make up your mind. And then the text says this. Nobody said a word. Nobody made a move. This is probably one of those moments when no one is making eye contact with Elijah as he's talking to them. The tension is really thick. Elijah's words are so convicting that no one, no one can speak or even move. Verse 22 and following says, Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you... Call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah explains how this thing is going to happen. You set up your altar, arrange your sacrifice on it, and then when you're ready, call on your God to light a fire on that altar. And the God who brings fire, he will officially be the winner of this contest. Elijah was pretty gutsy. He was pretty courageous. He stood there, even though he's vastly outnumbered. He was absolutely invincible because he knew that God was with him. Verse 25 and following, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bowls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us. They shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. Imagine these prophets of Baal. They're pretty proud. They eat at the table of Jezebel. They kinda, they're kind of popular in the region. 
And they start putting everything together because they're going first. And they call out to Baal. They start out kind of casually in the morning. And as the day progresses, nothing happens. So they start shouting. And they start dancing, trying to get just a little bit of fire from Baal. Just a spark. And still nothing happens. So imagine now, this entire time, Elijah is standing off to the side of this chaotic performance. And he starts adding his commentary. This is where I I really kind of admire Elijah. Just a little bit. Look at what he says. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. All morning, Elijah watched these prophets start slow, but continue to build volume and actions. They're getting kind of crazier and wilder as it goes. So he starts to sarcastically, you know, tweak them a little bit, heckle them a little bit. Hey, maybe you're not loud enough. Maybe, maybe he's meditating. Maybe he's busy, which is kind of an interesting word. He said maybe he's busy because there's this debate about the meaning in Hebrew of what this word busy actually, this translate in English, what it means in Hebrew. Some scholars actually believe Elijah may have been suggesting that Baal might just be visiting the celestial men's room. Whatever the meaning, he's clearly giving the prophets of Baal the business here. This went on from morning until evening, but there is no response from Baal. These famous priests and prophets of Baal who regularly dined at Queen Jezebel's table While most of the people in Israel suffered during this drought and famine, they ate well. But these guys, they're failing in this showdown. They were unable to elicit even one small, tiny spark or flame from their God. Now picture them absolutely exhausted. They've been at this for hours. They're falling down, lying on the ground, bleeding, panting, Maybe worst of all, suffering from the humiliation of their failure. At that dramatic moment, Elijah steps off the sideline and commands the crowd's attention. Listen to what he says. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood 
cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Things were so bad in Israel. God was so neglected for so long that the altar of God had actually been torn down. This broken down altar is a visible reminder of the people of Israel's broken and neglected relationship with God. It had been broken down for a while and nobody seemed to miss it because they were busy worshiping pagan gods. So the first thing that Elijah did was to rebuild the altar. And then he did something that's a bit strange initially. He digs a trench around the altar. Now last week, Philip talked about digging ditches and here we are again, the prophet of God himself digging a ditch around this altar. And then he tells the people to fill four large jars. Some translate this word jars as barrels. Either way, these are large jars or barrels and they're asked to fill them with water and pour it on the sacrifice, the wood and the altar. They repeated this two more times. The imagery here is that they used a lot of water to saturate everything involved with the sacrifice. It looks almost like Elijah wanted to make it difficult for God to light the sacrifice, but I think actually what's happening is he wants to make sure everyone understands God's incredible capabilities. He's making sure that when God brings fire on this sacrifice, there's no doubt in anyone's mind that when God lights this sacrifice, it'll be crystal clear to everyone that he is the one true God. So they soaked it. Now some question this story because they say, hey, if there was such a severe drought, where did you get all of this water? Where did that come from? They were in this horrible drought, why would they use water to do what Elijah wanted them to do? Well, it's important to note that Mount Carmel was on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea where you could have gotten plenty of water. Now, it's salt water, so the people couldn't drink it, but it would do the trick to saturate the wood and the altar and fill that trench. And then the next thing that happened, it's a wow moment. Elijah starts to pray. This is what he said. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Elijah's prayer, it's pretty simple. We think about it. But one thing that stands out is he prayed with a confidence, a faith, confident to know that God would answer this prayer. 
God had asked him to do this. He was faithful in it. And now he's saying, God, now is the time. Notice he doesn't scream. He's not shouting. There's no pleading or begging or wild kind of out of control dancing. Just a simple prayer that these people who are watching, that God, they would see you prove that you are the one true God. And in the process, that you would change their hearts, that they would come back to you. God's response was immediate. It's incredible. Check, out, check this out. It says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate. And cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. God brought fire that consumed everything. Sacrifice, wood, stones, dirt, all 12 barrels of water that had saturated everything. But God didn't just perform a sensational miracle here. He did something really important. He turned the hearts of the people back to himself. He proved that he was God. The people fell down before God and declared, the Lord, he is God. God, you are truly the God of all gods. One prophet with faith, believing that God could do immeasurably more than any of them could ever have imagined Elijah was outnumbered, but don't kid yourself for one second. He wasn't an underdog. The reason that he wasn't is because he had faith in God. And he knew that God could do even what seemed completely impossible. Bring fire to light a sacrifice that was saturated. And yet God went way beyond that. I think this story is fitting for Super Bowl weekend because it records one of God's great victories in the Bible, and the Bible is full of many of these. But this one stands out to me. It proves that when God is with you, even when you're outnumbered, you always are favored to be victorious, always. I wanna share with you three takeaways as we wrap this message up. For those of you especially who may feel as though you're an underdog in this journey we call life. Listen closely. I think God has something to share. The first takeaway is this. When you are with God, the odds are always in your favor. No matter how many people you may be up against, when you're with God, the odds are always in your favor. Outwardly, it may look like you're outnumbered, but you're not an underdog. I mean, it looked like Elijah was facing off with 450 prophets of Baal. We don't know what happened to the 400 prophets of Asherah. They weren't there. But he was going head to head with 450 grown adult male prophets. So if you're doing the math, it would probably look like something like this. 450 to one. And if that's how you do this math, you would be wrong. Because this is what actually the math is. 450 to one plus God. Now the prophets of Baal couldn't see God. 
but they saw the effect of what he was doing. When you're with God and you're walking in his will, you're doing his, his bidding, you're obedient to his call, you're unbeatable. Never forget that. The second takeaway is this. You cannot straddle the fence the Israelites were wavering, is what the text says. They were wavering between two things, God and Baal. The Hebrew word for waver that Elijah uses here means to bounce back and forth between two things. I'm not sure how much they were bouncing back between God and Baal. It seems like they were spending a lot of time on the Baal side. The people were bouncing back and forth Here's the question. Is there something that you bounce back and forth between whatever that is and God? I mean, some days you're here and then other days, you, for whatever reason, you bounce away from God over here. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, Jesus is addressing the church at Laodicea and he says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. They were bouncing back and forth, just in the middle. You don't want to be lukewarm. You don't want to go around bouncing back and forth between God and anything else. It's time to get off the fence. Either you are with God or you're not. And there is really no middle ground there. Well, the third and final takeaway is this. Every follower of God has a key weapon, and it's prayer. It's prayer. The one weapon Elijah used was prayer. Now, it's interesting how people will try just about everything first before they actually pray. Don't, don't make that mistake. God will never leave us. We're never fighting these battles alone. He has armed us with a number of spiritual weapons, and prayer is one of the most powerful weapons that we have. Our prayers connect us with God. They strengthen us for the fight. Prayer keeps us grounded. It opens up a dialogue with God, and he can reveal things to us that we can only learn from him. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call to me and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Call to me, he says. Call to me. When you're wrestling with something and you feel like you've reached a dead end, prayer brings us into the presence of the one who makes a way when there is no way. So here's the question. Do you pray? I know you probably think, well, of course I pray. But do you really pray? When someone else prays, do you listen? Do you join them? Do you follow their words and join them in what they're asking of God and what they're calling out to him for? Do you have a specific time every day where you set with just you and God, the time that's set aside so that the two of you can talk? where you can pray, if you don't have a time like that, if you're not a person who prays, I wanna challenge you. Over the next 21 days, meet with God every day. 
and spend some time just talking with him. You might be surprised the impact that that will have in your life. Well, let me close with this. Remember this reality. When you're a Christ follower, you can always have hope. This whole series has been about hope. And I want you to know, if you're a follower of Jesus, you always can have hope. Because God is always with you. Regardless of the situation that you might find yourself in, you can have hope. That hope comes from the reality that God never departs from you. I love what Hebrews 13, verse 5 says. It says, God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You might be outnumbered. You might even feel overwhelmed, but never forget. God's right there with you in the midst. Hold on to that truth that he is with you. He knows what you're going through. And he has a solution for every challenge that you face. God has superior power. He has ultimate authority over the universe, not just this planet, but all planets. He has the kind of ability that will send fire from heaven to not just consume the sacrifice, but the wood, the stones, the dirt, and all the water as well. He's got that kind of power. And that kind of recognition of that kind of power can give us hope. He gives hope. If you're a Christian, you may be outnumbered, but you will never be an underdog because God is with you. Never forget that. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for hope. It is a game changer when we face struggles, when we face challenges that seem like insurmountable things, mountains that are too high to climb. And yet, God, you have promised us that whatever the challenge is that we face, whether we're outnumbered by the world's standards, you are always with us. You never leave us. You never forsake us. Thank you for the hope we have, God, because of you. We know that you're with us, God, and I praise you tonight. I praise you today for that. Help us not to waver, God. Help us not to be like those Israelites who were straddling the fence. God, I pray we totally would live our lives totally sold out to you. I pray, God, that we would decide today. Maybe we've been wavering, kind of waffling, bouncing back and forth between God and, and something else in this life. But today we're going we're gonna to plant our foot in the ground and say, I'm not bouncing back anymore. I'm going to be committed to you, God. God, I thank you for confidence that comes from knowing you're with us. I think about the boldness of Elijah as he stood before 450 prophets and then hundreds, maybe even thousands of Israelites and, of course, a king that wanted him dead. And he stood there courageously because he knew you were with him. He had confidence. God, because of you, 
We're never going to be underdogs. We can be victorious no matter what the odds are because you're with us. And I thank you for that, God. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, church, I hope you've enjoyed this series as much as I have. It's been so good hearing about how mighty God is through the stories of Elijah and Elisha. And so we hope you've been encouraged. And so we would love to hear from you. Send us a message here on social. Drop us a line at notestomani at nccleks.org. And our team would love to talk with you about what you have experienced through this series. Lastly, if you're new here at Northeast, we would love to connect with you. Or if you've been wondering how to take the next step, head to nccleks.org slash connect, or you can click on the link here below and send us a message. Our team is going to reach out to you and help you get connected here. So lastly, we always leave a little time for generosity here. Whether you give through the Church Center app or you go online to nccleks.org, we are so thankful for your partnership that allows us to reach to the 40509 and beyond. Without you, we couldn't do it. That's all that we have for today. So thanks for joining us, and we can't wait to see you next week.